0: a life in which you do good work, in which you do work that that sort of has meaning for you, in which you have good relationships, that these things will naturally give you the resources that you need when you have to confront life's biggest challenges. And my dad going down to his library to spend his last days was as elegant an expression of this as I think you could ever come up with.
1: I'm Helen Russell, author, journalist, and happiness researcher, and each week I'll be talking to a special guest about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. I'm thrilled to share that my book, How To Be Sad, is now on sale wherever you buy your books in the US. You can find it on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks, and I'd love to hear what you think. We all learn the value of rest the hard way, says today's guest, a former Silicon Valley tech consultant, visiting scholar at Stanford, and the author of Rest, why you get more done when you work less. Alex Soo Jung Kim Pang argues persuasively that the perils of overwork are being woefully overlooked and they're making us miserable. He says, we're hitting the wire now. It's crazy to think how much more work we do than our parents or grandparents did. In his latest book, Shorter, he also makes a powerful case for the four-day week. Since to be sad, well, and live a full life, we need time for reflection. So here to set the record straight on rest and the dangers of overwork, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Oh, thanks, Helen. It's great to be with you.
1: We've spoken over the years. I've long found your work fascinating, and you were kind enough to be interviewed for my new book, How to Be Sad, so I'm delighted to have you on. And so tell me about the problems of overwork. How has this played out over the pandemic and how we mistakenly feel that overwork increases productivity?
0: There are a couple a couple things here. The you kind know, of phenomenon of our almost addiction, you could say, sort of to overwork is something that has been building over the last couple decades or of getting worse. It's always been kind of part of American culture. You know, more than a hundred years ago, William James Talked about how you know, Americans have this sort of mania for working themselves into a state of nervous exhaustion, in contrast to the rest of the world, which is much more moderate, sort of and sort of thoughtful about. He didn't use these exact words, but kind of balancing work and leisure. This is a an issue with which we have sort of uh, we have struggled for some time, and of course there were entire classes of people for whom overwork was, you know, essentially kind of predestined, you know, anyone who was working class or poor could look forward to, you know, sort of years of toil that we would, you know, that we would, we would describe that way. Now, but I think that, you know, the idea that overwork was something that was not to be avoided, but at least an inevitable part of professional life and kind of modern life, and even something not quite to be looked forward to, but a challenge to, you know, a challenge to be met that could make us better, stronger, more successful people, et cetera, et cetera, I think is something that's, uh, that's fairly recent, right? You know, it used to be that Careers and jobs were things that had a kind of steady progression to them, right? You might have spent your entire career in one or two companies. You started at a certain level. You paid your dues. You worked your way up. This was exemplified by the fact that in the 1950s, both General Motors and General Electric, the two biggest companies in the United States, were both run by guys named Charlie Wilson, both of whom had started in the mailrooms of their companies and had just put in their time and finally it would have reached the executive suite. You know, this is a model that has been broken by a bunch of things, but what it 's been replaced with, I think, is a model of success that depends upon sort of a combination of luck and timing, but also titanically long hours that you pour into your work in a race to be successful before you burn out right The Tim Cooks of the world, right the people who become CEOs after you know twenty plus years of their sort of at their firms are much less common at least in public imagination than sort of the Elon Musks, right? The people who work 130-hour weeks and are billionaires before they're 35. And so, partly the cultural model of what success looks like and our assumptions about what you do in order to become successful have changed. I think we all, you know, the fact that we also now uh, live in a world in which we can carry our offices around in our pockets has you know, shifted the way in which we think about work time and personal time and has allowed work to become something that you know follows us everywhere. And I think this is you know this is illustrated by what's happened during the pandemic. You know obviously work had to follow us home, but the statistics indicate that lots of people who have been working from home have been working longer hours at home than they were sort of when they were in the office. And of course, I don't need to you know, tell anybody about the challenges that have come from you know reducing your commute to going from one side of the sofa to the other and the impact that's had on being able to manage boundaries between work life and home life. At the same time that you're also trying to you know, homeschool, get your sourdough starter going, figure out the thousand and one other things you need to do in order to redesign the boundaries between work life and home life. And so I think that that one of the, you know, one of the unfortunate consequences of the pandemic has been to sort of domesticate overwork in a way that is we will require a little time to recover from. The good part, on the other hand, is that the pandemic has also showed us that when we really have to we individuals and businesses and entire economies can change much more quickly than we ever really thought possible and my hope is that that ability to change to change fast and more dramatically than we might ever have sort of predicted is something that we can use to our advantage in the future that we don't have to just go back to the way things were uh, with work and work-life balance, but that, you know, maybe we can sort of move on to create something There's so much
1: to unpack there. So with your new book, Rest, you were advocating individual solutions for the problem of overwork. We should stop treating workaholics as heroes. But you also came to understand that many of these problems are systematic, that they're bigger than us, right?
0: Absolutely. Rest was about the hidden role of rest in, sort of, in the lives of super creative people. Indeed, the first really serious studies of, sort of the, the downsides of overwork for both people and organizations were done in factories. They tended to be slightly more skilled work, you know, opticians who were you know, grinding lenses, which is fairly precise stuff but also munitions factories. And what they've began to discover in the 1910s and what has been confirmed in industry and industry of profession around the world, you know, nursing, law enforcement, care professions, uh, legal work, etc is that you, once you get to working you know, past about eight hours a day and certainly once you get above, once organizations go into a kind of permanent, permanent overtime mode you know, of working, let's say, 50 or 60 hours a week, kind of typical Silicon Valley hours. Those extra hours, that push generates additional productivity for a couple weeks, but then things start to taper off because people start to get tired. You know, basically they get cranky, they start to get burned out, they make mistakes. You get errors in production processes, such, you know, the machines and people begin to wear down such that, after a couple months, productivity actually can drop to levels below that of, sort of factories when they were working 40-hour work weeks. And you see a similar kind of thing in you know, care industries or sort of, with police. You know, the odds of sort of mistakes on the job go up pretty dramatically when you're, you know, sort of at the end of a double shift. And these can have can have severe consequences when you are dispensing medications or you're making a, you know you're making a decision about sort of someone's care or future you know so it's absolutely the case that we're talking about things that that are universals that are not just confined to sort of what we think of as the create you know as as kind of creative work i would also say one of the other really important things that i've learned the people I write about in my latest book kind of helped me see, was that virtually every kind of work that actually is creative. We don't give it that designation or that honorific, but you know, if you are a nurse, if you're working in a nursing home and you're trying to get people with sort of, you know, dementia up and moving and sort of through their day, there's actually an awful lot of decision-making and judgment and empathy and creativity that's required to make that happen. And so I think that, you know, these days pretty much most of the work that is not creative probably has pretty much been automated by robots or computers. And so I think one of the reasons that, Understanding the value of rest is important and understanding sort of the value of the four day week is that pretty much everybody works in an industry that requires some measure of ingenuity and creativity. And that's the other reason that it benefits all that these kinds of approaches benefit us all.
1: And so I grew up in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher years in Britain, But and the idea was that you had to aim high, you worked hard. And then I came of age with the Malcolm Gladwell outliers idea that you need to work really hard. You need to put in 10,000 hours to achieve success. But can you share the lesser reported part of the 10,000 hours study?
0: Yeah, I love this is actually discovering this was one of the things that made me realize that I could write rest and that it would be a genuinely interesting book, at least to me. There's a difference in the way that top performers practice that sets them apart from sort of ordinary conservatory students. And he found that they tended to practice, they engaged in what he called deliberate practice, which was not just running scales, but you know, working on very particular parts of their performance in a way that could elicit clear feedback that let them then identify ways in which they could improve. And, or of, and apply those in or of the next iteration of their performance. So top performers engage in deliberate practice, which is an important thing. But he also noticed a couple other things about uh, or of the lives of the top performers as, that set them apart. One was that they actually slept more than the average student. Right these were not people who were spending 18 hours a day in the practice room and you know, if you've ever, ever seen the movie Whiplash or virtually any movie with sort of musicians uh, or you know artists there's often this you know montage of them staying up until all hours you know in a kind of creative frenzy his top performers actually didn't do that they slept more than the average in part because they tended to take a nap in the middle of the day the other thing was that they they spent less time on hobbies or leisure than the average uh, student, but they were better able to explain why they chose their hobbies and what they got out of them. And so not only did they practice deliberate deliberate practice, but they also engaged in um, kind of deliberate rest. And so it was not just the 10,000 hours over the course of a decade that accounted for them being really good, It was also 12,500 hours of deliberate rest and 30,000 hours of sleep. And you put all of those together, and that was what accounted for them being uh, world-class performers.
1: The idea that there are models of creative working that are difficult to access for mothers or, shall we say, lead carers... It's quite a tricky one, isn't it? I heard you talking to Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, who I'm actually speaking to later this week, about how often you find your most productive times to work are around 5am to 9am. And I found I was, I mean, so, so envious and a bit sort of angry because that is an absolutely non-negotiable time for primary caregivers of small kids. It means someone else is doing breakfast and brushing hair and teeth and getting kids dressed and making packed lunches and doing the school run. These are more of the structural... Inequalities and questions that perhaps aren't we aren't encouraged to question growing up.
0: I should say that I do get some of my most productive sort of writing time in the super early hours. Even though I'm not a morning person, I've had to learn how to get up and work at five a.m. But I started doing that when my youngest kid was maybe twelve or so. So you know, the thing I think when you are, in my experience, was that. You know, I loved being a parent. I learned an immense amount about the world and about myself by doing that. You know, if anything, I wish I had become a become a father sort of earlier in my life because I like my kids, and so you know, it be, would have been would have been nice to have some more time with them. But the reality, you know, that about young children, younger children is that they are wonderful, and I don't begrudge a moment with them. But young kids are vampires, and they will. You know, they will consume every bit of emotional energy and time and every other resource that you have without a second's thought and without any regret whatsoever you know it took me a while to come to terms with this fact that you know when the when my kids were younger i was like how come i'm not able to finish another book and it was you know because i've got these two people running around who are you know who are incredibly demanding and also incredibly rewarding but you know i think that the you know part of the key to being able to you know to work in those super early hours was not having people in you know in footed pajamas you know coming out at you know at 5:45 deciding that it was time for breakfast you know i think we need to we need to acknowledge that and factor factor it in any conversation that we have about sort of your creativity and work and equity and any understanding of how these things become accessible to people at different parts of their lives or, you know, depending upon the kind of life that they live.
1: What advice would you give to anyone in that situation? I mean, my capacity for concentration and even deep play has reduced dramatically since becoming a parent.
0: I would say, first of all, that we should think about these kinds of things not at the level of the day, but at the level more of the year, right? That the, the I think that, for me the reality was that i was not able to do the kind of writing that i am that i organize my life around these days when i had when my kids were younger and you know i got one book done in the 10 years in sort of the first 10 years of my sort of what of my kids lives i think being moderate about your own expectations about sort of uh about yourself especially if you're in a job in which you can kind of set, you you know, you can mainly set your own goals, is, you know, is the first essential thing. The second is to recognize that, you know, this is like riding a bicycle. You can get it back. And when the kids get a little older, it's not like you've forgotten absolutely everything. You kind of feel that way sometimes, but it can come back to you faster than than you would expect. And, you know, for many of us, I think, when you come back to it you come back to it with a deeper body of knowledge than when you put big projects sort of on hold my favorite example of this is an historian named Inga Clendinnen who was an Australian academic and she wrote uh, she wrote a couple books about the aztecs that completely changed sort of the field And she did this pioneering work in military history and kind of at the sort of intersection of military history and cultural history, looking at particularly about at um, Aztec ideas about combat and sort of the rituals around warfare. And she said in an interview that for Almost 20 years when she was raising her boys, she, you know, she, she was, she was teaching, she was busy with them, but she really wasn't doing an awful lot of research, but she learned an immense amount of stuff about life, about herself, about birth and death and mortality through being a parent. But, you know, all of that turned out to be an incredible resource for her own work that gave it a kind of depth that she thought it would not have that it would not have had otherwise, and so I think that the that taking this kind of longer view and recognizing that for all of our ambition and impatience, we are probably you know we're probably going to be on this earth eighty or ninety years of which, if we take care of ourselves, an awful lot of it can be productive time. I would say you know playing a long game is is a good thing. The only other piece I would of advice I would give is that. My kids turned out great with me raising them following three simple rules that if they didn't turn into you know, serial killers or you know, become child soldiers or fall prey to easily preventable communicable diseases, then that was like my baseline as a parent. And what that you know, the serious version of that was giving them as much autonomy and independence as they could handle and therefore buy, you know, also buying myself a little bit more time to myself <laughs> was, you know, was going to be good for them and good for me. And so I think that 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 worked out for all of us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for sharing that, Alex. I think the percolating part is certainly of value. And you mentioned your own parenting journey. Tell me about growing up. I know you were born in California, you grew up all over. Your dad was a professor and you spent a lot of time in Brazil, is that right?
0: Yeah, so he came over to the States from Korea after the war. And so, you know, met my mother who was American, Met actually met in college in West Virginia, where he was probably, he said, not the only Korean at school but probably the only Korean in the state you know this was wow. in the in the 1950s and he decided in graduate school to focus on Latin American history and so you know i spent several years of my childhood like traveling around with you know him and my mom in the interior of brazil going to archives um, we spent time in rio and salvador And of course, as an academic, your life your professional life is often a little itinerant. So after California, we lived for a while in you know Tennessee and Virginia, where I finally went to, you know, high school and then sort of and then off to college. So there was a lot of kind of movement in as a consequence of that. And then, you know, kind of how I got into this was I had been interested as a academic in in history of science. And in particular, sort of how it is that scientists actually worked and kind of what helped them be creative. And over time came to realize that, you know, when you study this stuff, you really focus on what people are doing when they're working, right? You know, kind of, you're looking at like the creative environment of the laboratory or, you know, or, or things of that sort. And nobody looked at, what people were doing in their off hours or in their leisure time and what effect that might have in giving people a little more of an edge or having them simply have better and more sustainable careers. This became particularly compelling to me after an experience that I had on a sabbatical where I got an incredible amount of stuff done, but I also had like a lot, I felt like I had an awful lot of free time. And in contrast to my life in Silicon Valley, where you're always like, half a project behind and constantly time pressured. And it made me realize that, you know, maybe our assumptions about the relationship between working time or between overwork and achievement, which, you know, the sort of these ideas that are just second nature to all of us now, that maybe they're actually completely backwards. And that in order to do work that we really want to be able to do and to do it for most of our lives without burning out, that, that, Maybe the way that you do that is by rethinking the relationship between work and rest and actually spending more time doing things that don't look like work, but actually play a decisive role in helping us have good ideas and making it possible to do really important enduring work versus just keeping busy. That's kind of the, the story of how I got into all of this.
1: And when you say rest, I know many of us might think just lying on a couch, but you don't just mean that, do you? Rest means a variety of things to you.
0: What I found in researching the book was that very often the most restorative kinds of rest are actually much more active. They're physical. It sounds a little counterintuitive, but, you know, I think many of us have had the experience of, you know, kind of feeling energized after a workout or a run And if you're working in a field or you're the kind of person who kind of obsesses over over their work, that having something that is physically active or mentally demanding that takes your mind off work is actually super, super valuable. Winston Churchill in his book, A Painting is a Pastime, talked about how if you live a really active life, it's very difficult to just shut off your mind and to think of nothing at all. What you need instead is a hobby that is as engaging as your work. And a lot of the people who, you know, who I write about turn out to follow that advice, whether they had heard it or not, and discover hobbies that are physically challenging, that maybe, you know, that are that are mentally challenging, but which also are restorative and diverting and, you know, in sort of in some ways restful. Rest certainly can be sitting on a couch with a bag of snacks in one hand and the TV remote in the other. It is a lot more than that as well.
1: It's interesting when you mentioned you were on sabbatical, you felt as though you were getting more done. Can we talk about the subjectivity of time? I heard you say that in organisations where the four day week has been trialled, many report feeling that they have easily enough time to fit in what used to be five days worth of work. And I've been looking at research around volunteering and helpers high and warm glow giving when we don't feel like we have less time because we're giving some of it away in volunteering. We feel we have more. Is there a similar effect at work? I wonder when we feel it's time well spent. I'm not sure if I explained that well, but you can do a much better job.
0: This comes from a survey in a company called Synergy Vision, which does kind of medical editing and documentation stuff, actually in London. And they were doing a set of surveys of their employees right before implementing a four day week and then like, six months, six months after. One of the things that jumped out at me was that, yes, they were uh, they were working more intensively. So you know, they're working, 4 days rather than 5 they're still working 8-hour days but they're you know they're having to be a lot you know a lot more focused a lot more thoughtful about how they were spending their time but the percentage of people who reported that they felt they had enough time to get all their work done actually went up in this over these 6 months and so time better spent feels subjectively like more time and It was really striking to me that these, the percentage of people who reported that they had enough time to get their work done went, I think, from a just under 50% to just over 80%, even though the number of hours that they were working had gone down by 20%. And so I think that it's, it is a nice illustration of the kind of subjectivity of time and the subjectivity of kind of sort of time poverty, but it's also just one of many studies or data points that show that time well-spent feels richer than time poorly spent. And whether that is because you are spending your day of more effectively at work or whether because you are volunteering or you're doing other things that are meaningful, your experience of time feels richer. It feels in some ways slower. And it feels more rewarding than time where you are, you know, constantly, you know, multitasking. Sort of, you are jumping from one thing to another, and you're kind of ending a long day wondering, "What in the world did I get done?"
1: And I live in Denmark, where there's a big emphasis on autonomy at work, and I think that's something you mention. But I know that in the U.S., there's often a sense of Scandinavia as this magical pixie land where strange things happen. And work and the Scandinavian model seem like a fairy tale. But I've looked at the study showing how actually Americans are uniquely obsessed with the pursuit of happiness and aversion to sadness compared to the rest of the world. And I know that you found the same in terms of work, haven't you? Americans are also uniquely obsessed with overwork and the cult of busyness. And historically, there's been very different working culture in the US and Europe with longer holidays and shorter working weeks. And the idea has been that Europe is perhaps less productive as a result. But actually, this isn't the case, is it? Can you explain a bit more? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Both for individuals and for companies, this is so. And at the individual level, um, if you look at things like the Framingham Heart Study, which was a study over the course of, what, 30 or more years of the lives and health and work of thousands of people in a community in Massachusetts. What they found was that people who took regular vacations, who consistently took as much of their vacation time as they, uh, as they could lived longer. They were happier. They had fewer comorbidities. They aged more gracefully and more healthily than people who did not. And I think that there is a growing body of evidence that, you know, unless you're in a company whose model more or less explicitly is take 23-year-olds, um, appeal either to their greed, idealism, or naivete, or ambition, work them as hard as you possibly can for a couple of years, extract as much value as, you, you know, as possible, and then discard the battered husks off to business school and bring in a new crop, uh, that kind of model works better for organizations as well. That over the long run, a workforce that is better rested, that is more seasoned, will deliver better results than one that is constantly, constantly time pressured, constantly stressed and feels like it can't leave work, you know, because work is too important or because they'll be made redundant if they, you know, if they seem so ungrateful to be employed that they actually take their vacation time to which they are legally, you know, legally allowed.
1: Do you think that message is getting through in the U.S.?
0: I think that as we move out of the pandemic that this is going to be one of the things that we will take away that you know that sort of actually this kind of downtime the kind of decentering of work as the sun around which sort of the the planets of our lives revolve needs to be dethroned I think these things are beginning to happen. There was a just an article in the New York Times today that sh- uh, about how you know in the US there's been this argument that well unemployment benefits have been too you know basically have made poor people too rich in the last few months and so the reason that the economy isn't moving faster is because poor people can make too much money on unemployment and so what we're going to do is we're going to cut those benefits. The states that have done that have not actually seen more people going back to work in in higher numbers than states that had more more generous benefits. And so what this suggests is, you know, a recognition that, you know, these jobs working in warehouses, jobs working as waitresses, these actually were pretty lousy jobs and maybe we can come up with something better. And so my hope is that we actually will make some progress in that direction and that part of that will be a recognition that that working people to death will be sort of less attractive and less viable a business model than it has been in the past and that you know accepting the challenge of helping ambitious people craft professional and personal lives that have a little more moderation and therefore, more sustainability and longevity will be something that smart businesses can use, use to their advantage.
1: Yeah. And I wonder about another style of workplace where similarly, the pandemic may have called time or not. I'm thinking of employers who use the apparent trappings of happiness, in inverted commas, as a strategic resource almost to boost productivity. You know, bean bags, free lunches, free gym membership to keep us at work co-opting mindfulness to boost productivity and keep us at our desks. There are companies, aren't there, that create this gloss of friendliness over a structure that is fundamentally transactional. How do you see this panning out post-pandemic?
0: Well, I think as more people are recognizing, as Sarah Jaffe put it, that work won't love you back. The idea that emotional investment in a workplace and in a job is, is, in a sense, something that an employer should be able to expect from you is more people are recognizing that as, as a kind of manipulation rather than a strategy for success. More broadly, I think one of the hopeful things that I'm seeing is that for all of the value of mindfulness and self-care, etc., that one of the things that a focus on these things has done is reduce the challenge obscure the kinds of structural issues that sort of we have not dealt with in the workplace and replace them with a set of kind of individual challenges. The message of too many workplace mindfulness seminars is that the key to improved productivity lies within. It doesn't lie with your manager actually doing a better job of management or having better processes or... You know, learning how to say no to clients when they want completely ridiculous things. It's about learning to control your breath and clear your mind, et cetera, so that you can meet these challenges and be both in love with your work, but also, I don't know, detached from the rest of your life or whatever it is that people are saying these days. You know, one of the things that companies moving to four day weeks, the companies adopting flexible work are showing is that these problems are actually ones that have collective and structural solutions that are infinitely more powerful than the individual personal ones and that places that want that genuinely want to solve these uh, solve these problems and I think places that want to attract good workers maybe will shift some of the burden for sort of addressing these problem, uh, addressing these issues away from the individual and actually assume them for themselves. The companies that I've looked at talk a lot about recognizing that things like missed deadlines or you know sort of or projects that blow up that these you know they don't look at them any longer as issues with you know. Bob in project management or this set of developers, they see them as systemic issues that require, you know, organization require organizational solution. And I think that that is that's something that is all to the good. And, you know, offers a, I think, a necessary counterbalancing to the sort of to this, to the perspective that the way to be a fuller person and a better worker is you know to do these things just by yourself and to not have the organization also do do some work itself
1: i feel as though the passing of the last year or year and a half has really underlined the fact that there are some things we just can't hard work our way out of on an individual level it does have to be a communal effort it can seem quite radical some of these things you're saying but i know that you have a lot of data to back it up so that even the most hard-headed, cynical business types can't deny that it's also good for the bottom line, that it makes sense financially. Is that right?
0: Yes, absolutely. And you know, we have, you know, just in my own little corner of this, you know, or sort of companies that have shortened their work weeks without cutting salaries and without cutting expectations about productivity or customer service. I have hundreds of examples of sort of firms around the world in a variety of industries that have been able to do this apparently impossible thing. And, you know, what I see is that when they plan for it, well, you know, when they do a few things in order to, to improve, improve life, daily life within the company. Things like making meetings shorter and being more thoughtful about how you use technology and kind of, you know, going from 14 open Slack channels, going continuously to, you know, a couple that you check in on now and then and redesigning the day so that people have permission to spend the time that they need kind of heads down, focused on their most important work, that it really does actually become possible to do five days worth of work in four without any sacrifices what I get from this is that even in places that see themselves as as pretty pretty well run there's a lot of kind of conventional thinking about how we spend our time that could yield to improvement. I think the other important thing is that you know when an entire company takes on this challenge when a 4-day week becomes available to everybody as opposed to being something just that you know the moms ask for or it becomes you know something that you that you have to negotiate individually with your boss it turns the effort to shorten the work week and the effort to find ways to do that effectively from either you know an individual struggle against the organization or potentially a zero sum game in which you are having to do things that might you know cost your organization or put more work upon or sort of upon your colleagues turns it from that kind of situation into one in which everybody has to collaborate and work together in order to make the four day week a success, right? My ability to go home at the end of day Thursday depends on your ability to respect my time, you know, my ability to respect your need to focus and all of our ability to get the work done so that we can all get out of there. It turns out as sort of one founder uh, put it to me that, Collective action turns out to be the most powerful form of self-care in the universe. And companies that have moved to four-day weeks and are successfully transitioning to things like flexible or hybrid work, I think are great test beds of that principle and of the fact that you can do this and improve your bottom line.
1: And something I'm also interested in, and this may not be directly in your realm of research, but this is a podcast about how to be sad well. So I think busyness is a very common way of distracting ourselves from sadness, from something we don't want to face, a way to avoid feeling sad. In the short term, at least, we can kick the can down the road. And is this something you've come across in your work? Are more people realizing this in a pandemic, do you think?
0: People who study grief have been ringing alarm bells about the impact that the pandemic is going to have on basically on public and mental health for probably the next decade or so, that you cannot in the United States lose 600,000 people and counting without that having a big effect on the people who are remaining. And I think that's one of the things that this has done is made lots of us think about or think twice about the place that busyness and the place that uh, sort of that work have in our lives, and ask what it is that that we want to do going forward. To stick with the sort of with the wellness and the sort of perks in the workplace question for a tiny bit. That I suspect what's going to happen is that smart workplaces are going to figure out how they can help make work more meaningful for workers as opposed to as opposed to delivering the kind of sugar rush of instant happiness you can't answer deep existential questions for people you can however do things that make it a little bit easier for them to think through them or sort of for themselves and there certainly are things that you can do in order to make work at the kind of everyday level or sort of more meaningful as opposed to making it sort of superficially superficially happier and I think that the smart companies will ask themselves, what things are we doing that can have some enduring psychological benefit for people, both as a way of drawing people back into sort of those workplaces or sort of into those companies, also as a way of helping them build the kind of sort of psychological depth or resilience that they need in order to process and to deal with the fact that we've been through this pandemic that has killed an awful lot of people. That probably is gonna show Every sign of not being the first of any number of COVIDs that we're going to have to deal with, you know, in our lifetime and make and helping all of us individually and collectively be in a better position to respond to to the next one. So a shift from mere happiness to meaning is something that that smart companies will undergo and that will work to the benefit of all of us, both in the, you know, both in the short run and in the long.
1: I think that's really powerful that it's meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And now I could talk to you for hours, but I'd love to hear knowing all, you know, what do you do now when you're feeling low? I know you have dogs with a lot of dog walking. Do you structure your day around rest? What helps you when you're feeling sad?
0: That's a great question certainly the dogs the dogs help and there is a kind of i think there is there is value in the kind of really sort of primal relationship that you have that you know we have with uh, with animals it's easy to both sentimentalize and it's easy to underestimate the value of it but i think it can make a gigantic difference for even the best of us or the best adjusted among us you know i think that the the challenge Going back a little bit to like Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning is, you know, not to have strategies or things that you do in response to challenges, but rather to have a life that ideally allows you to rise to those challenges, to rise to whatever challenges life throws at you without having to make big adjustments, right? Having a life in which you can... You know, in which you already have the resources that you need to respond to big stuff. And the reason that I'm sort of thinking about, about this more is I had an example of it sort of very recently that I'm still kind of processing, and uh, which is my dad, who we talked about sort of a little bit uh, or a uh, little earlier, sort of died at the end of April.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry, Alex.
0: Well, you know, he was 84. He'd been diagnosed with cancer four years ago. went through chemo he beat it for a while then it kind of came back with a vengeance at which point he and my stepmother decided that you know they could do some experimental stuff for more radical things and it would buy a couple more months but most of that time would be spent in a hospital and, and he felt like you know at this point as he put it I outlived Japanese imperialism and World War II I survived the Korean War and I outlasted the Trump administration as if these four things were like all equivalent in his mind but he kind of felt like at this point they had done enough in the last couple weeks. And I was out there, he actually moved down into his home office in his basement, which was this, you know, it was this vast room. They'd converted it into a library. His desk was there. It was, I don't know if you've ever read, um, Edith Wharton's the age of innocence, but there's a line in there about, you know, where Newland Archer is in his library or in his study, and, he, and Wharton has this line about it was the room in which in which the most real parts of his life had taken place. And the fact that, you know, partly that his instinct was to spend his last days, right, not in Vegas, but, you know, among the books, right, in this place where he had done, done the most meaningful, you know, his most meaningful work. You know, it struck me that... You know, this was a marvelous example of what, you know, what Frankel talks about, where, you know, he says that the, a life in which you do good work, in which you do work that, that sort of has meaning for you, in which you have good relationships, that these things will naturally give you the resources that you need when you have to confront life's biggest challenges. And my dad going down to his library to spend his last days was as elegant an expression of this as I think you could ever come up with. What
1: was the question? I think you've answered it beautifully. (laughs) And I wonder, did you feel you had what you needed in place in your life to deal with that loss?
0: That's a really interesting question. I think so. But I think that, you know, the thing is, I think probably these kinds of big existential losses are things that you process for a while because I had more or less followed in the same field, right? I did a I did a PhD in history and stuff. We spent virtually every conversation we had for 30 plus years with shop talk, right? This was the stuff that he loved best. And it was the stuff that we talked about all the time. And when I would go on business trips to Europe, he would task me, you know, while you're in London, stop in the Imperial War Museum because I need someone to look at this piece of the Mountbatten papers or, you know, in the Bodleian, there's this dissertation and I need, I need these appendices. And so, you know, in this way, our kind of this thing that gave meaning to his life was also something that became an important connection between his and mine. And I think in a way that one of the things I'm realizing, my son is now in college, and he's discovered a love of international relations and political science, the kinds of stuff that my dad studied. And part of what I'm realizing is that, you know, for all of our individual differences, there seems to be some bigger set of interests or abilities or, you know, vital spirit or elan or whatever that lives on through all of us and that gave shape to his life and. You know, in different ways to mine and seems now to be appearing in the next generation. And for someone who is pretty non-spiritual, it's an interesting thing to think about. And it is a source of, I don't know if comfort is quite the right word, but of it does encourage you to kind of take a longer view of, you know, what otherwise would be, I think, a harder loss.
1: I think that's an incredibly heart-swelling story. And it's not even my family. So thank you for sharing that. And my final question, possibly more poignant now than ever, is knowing all you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well?
0: Hmm. When I was thinking about this first, the first question I would have posed to myself was, would you want to live the same life but better or would you want to go in a completely different direction in a sense, make sort of a completely different set of mistakes. However, regardless of, you know, which way I went, I was absolutely one of those, uh, those people when I was younger, you know, who bought completely into the idea that, you know, I was going to be a success because of, you know, kind of super a combination of sort of raw talent and super long hours. And that if I could convince my younger self to moderate that sum, then, you know, I think that that would uh, that would be good both for maybe having boosted my my own productivity or helped me get a little closer to whatever goals I had. But I think also that it is difficult to make sense of or to work through really big things in your life when you're super busy and that having more time that at some times in our lives we spend in leisure and sometimes of our lives we spend in you know sort of we spend on our kids and at others we spend you know sort of making sense of making sense of losses whether they are you know very immediate or whether they're ones that you know we share with millions of other people having a life in which you can maintain that space turns out to be an essential thing because there actually is virtually no part in our lives in which that kind of thing is not necessary and is not happening. When we're young, we all think we're going to live forever, and that you know, and that sort of all of our friends are. And at a certain point, we discover that that's not the case. But I think you know, one of the things that busyness allows is it lets us ignore that, but at the cost of having to learn those lessons, lessons later, sometimes later than we ought to and i think it probably makes it harder to learn them when we need whether my younger self would have listened though i am not sure unfortunately one of the things about rest and the need for rest and its value is that everybody who discovers it seems to learn about it the hard way this is true whether they are nobel laureates or like you know you know or not that you know we all have to go through the experience of nearly burning out or destroying our health or, you know, or having other bad things happen in our lives before we recognize just how important this is. You know, it's something we have to sort of learn in our bones in a way. What I have seen with the reception of rest is that, you know, I get mail from all over about the book even now, and it is very rarely from people who are younger, but the book resonates resonates with people who are ready for the message as opposed to sort of people who are you know who are super busy and feel themselves super successful and sort of approach it as a kind of preventative so i would like to think that i would have been wiser but i know that i wouldn't have been. <laughs> i know unfortunately that i wouldn't have been so
1: so we learn the lesson when we need to learn the lesson
0: yes i suppose the you know the one thing i would i would i would tell my younger self is you know have the kids earlier but that would have been a heavy lift
1: i think so at 21 i think that's sound advice thank you so much alex a real pleasure to speak to you
0: oh thank you it was a real pleasure
1: thank you so much for joining me today please do rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.